You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast featuring some of Indiana's most fascinating men and women whose impact has shaped our state, our communities, and us. Join us as we discuss their imprint on our history. Leaders and Legends is brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated, your local veteran business enterprise specializing in public relations, media relations, public outreach, crisis communications, and digital photography. My name is Robert Bain, Principal of Veteran Strategies, former Deputy Chief of Staff to Mayor Greg Ballard, and Communications Director for the Indiana Republican Party. I'm honored to be your host for our discussion. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is former Mayor Bart Peterson. Very gracious of you, Mayor, to join us today. We appreciate your time and are excited for today's conversation. You're a lifelong Indianapolis resident and one of a gaggle of distinguished North Central High School grads. Talk to us a little bit, please, about growing up in Indianapolis. Well, first of all, Robert, thank you for having me. And uh, uh, I don't know uh, how I compare to uh, some of the uh, truly distinguished North Central High School grads. Uh, It's (laughs) produced a lot of uh, uh, terrific leaders, not just here in the city and state, but, but nationally. But it was also a very big high school. And I had almost 1,200 in my graduating class, and uh, that was that was quite an experience. It uh, uh, prepared me prepared me for the world in a in a in a in a unique way. I think uh, being part of a of a big high school, a diverse high school, was almost like a city uh, in and of itself. I think uh, uh, had me had me well prepared for this world that I ended up uh, going into later on in life. Well, so far we've had North Central grads, Mitch Daniels, and we've had Mark Miles. We haven't had distinguished North Central grad Kip Two on yet. Well, that, you, that, you're remiss in that. I'm sure you'll get around to it. <laughs> and you were kind of in between that group. Did you know the Daniels family? Did you know the Miles family? Were you proximate and kind of where you grew up? No, uh, I didn't. Uh, I grew up with four siblings, and I was the, f- excuse me, yeah, four siblings. I was the fourth of five. And uh, so uh, starting with my oldest sister, who's six years older than me, down to my youngest, who's three years younger, we we cover the gamut. And there's usually somebody in there who went to school with somebody who went to <laughs> North Central, some family. So uh, so we we uh, we covered a, a pretty good range, but no, the uh, Daniels family and the Miles family didn't overlap with me. One of the things that I've said, and you're about 10 years older than me, I never came, I grew up in Irvington on the east side, I never came downtown except to see Dick the Bruiser. You remember Dick the Bruiser. Very well. Ernie the Big Cat Lad, the Valiant (laughs) Brothers, obviously Andre the Giant. What was it like to be a teenager in Indianapolis in the time that you were on the cusp of the city, really downtown, exploding? Well, I I think maybe the 10 years difference between us uh, is meaningful because I will tell you, I think I remember downtown when it still had some life to it. So it actually literally died while I was, you know, in in, <laughs> in my formative years. I remember coming to the Indiana Theater when it was still open as a movie theater. Uh, it was uh, uh, pretty rudimentary as a as in terms of amenities. I remember they had Dixie cups with 
orange juice in them. That was the concession stand. <laughs> orange juice and water. Uh, but they had a big they had a big screen. And uh, I remember seeing Dr. Doolittle there, and that was probably right that was that would have been nineteen sixty four, I think, probably Very right close. before it closed. Right? No, Dr. Doolittle um was the was the guy who talked to the animals. I can't remember uh who was the star of that. But in any case, uh I, I that place closed shortly thereafter. The downtown department stores were still open when I was young. Um, downtown really started to lose its, uh, you know, its attractions um, while I was a kid. And so it wasn't probably until I came back to Indianapolis from law school when I was 25 years old uh, that you could really see a, a meaningful difference. The, the difference, the changes started way before that with Market Square Arena being built uh, in the early 70s. So the revival of downtown was well underway by then. But uh, but I unfortunately got to see it go down. Uh, but then fortunately, I uh, got to watch it uh, come back up pretty significantly so that by the time I was mayor, we were on a, on a, a very significant upward trajectory. College at Purdue and law school at Michigan. Why did you choose those two universities? Well, Purdue was the family school. Uh, neither of my parents went to college. My oldest sister chose Purdue, and uh, it became the place where we were, I think, all expected to go. I all I remember is I was not. I was first of all, I was not a great high school student, uh, and I. <laughs> I, I was grateful that back then Purdue was uh, easier to get into than it is today, uh, particularly if you were not an engineering major, and I was certainly not. Uh, but I never even thought about going anywhere else because it was just sort of uh, it was sort of in the family DNA, I guess, to go to Purdue. So all five of us kids went to Purdue. Uh, only really? my youngest sister, who got married very young, she got married after her sophomore year in college. And moved to a guy from Philadelphia and moved to Philadelphia and graduated from Temple. But uh, she at least had two years in at Purdue and all the, the other rest of us are all Purdue graduates. Your parents were down with that marriage? Uh, they were okay with it. Yes, <laughs> they. I'm sure they were a little uh, in retrospect uh, as I look back on it. I was pretty young then too, but I, I as I look back on it, I'm sure they were a little concerned. Uh, but she's done very, very well. She's built a great life out in the Philadelphia area. She's the only one of my siblings who doesn't live in central Indiana. So all the rest of us are still here. My father passed away about five years ago, but my mother is still alive and, and doing very, very well. So we're fortunate to, uh, to all, I'm fortunate to have all of them still around uh, with the exception of my younger sister who comes back with some frequency. And we just saw her the other day too. My family's from New Jersey and spent a lot of time in Philadelphia. It's a wonderful, wonderful city. You graduated from high school, I'm going to guess, 76, 77? 76, yeah. Was it in the mid-70s, mid to late 70s, high school, college at Purdue, that your your political philosophy was formed? Tumultuous times in the United States? Or did you find yourself drifting one way or another before then? I talked to a teacher in my daughter's school uh, back when she was very young, uh, 10, 11, 12. And I remember him telling me something that has stuck with me ever since. He said, if you're going to develop a worldview, not everybody does, but if you're going to develop a worldview, you tend to develop it uh, when, you're, when you're around that age, 10, 11, 12, and that what's going on in the world will have a big influence on you uh, 
at, at that age. It's a particularly formative age, according to him. And uh, as I look back, that, that really resonated with me because I was 10 years old in 1968, uh, the tumultuous year when I, I can't imagine those years 68, 69, 70. I can't imagine being the age I am today. I would have thought the world was falling apart. And I'm sure my parents did and 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 grandparents did. Um, but somehow we as a country survived and we as a world survived. Uh, but I think my worldview was, was uh, significantly impacted by that era. Uh, I, it Watergate was, included? Uh, Watergate, yeah, a little Watergate a little bit later on, but I I think probably the assassination of Dr. King and the the sort of the tail end of what we think of as the civil rights movement had a pretty profound impact on me. Racial justice and uh, issues of fair treatment of all people have always been a, a pretty profound issue with me. Uh, maybe the most profound issue in determining my political leanings and ideology. And, and I and I can't help but think that it was influenced by the events of, of 68, 69, 70. Why Michigan for law school? Was the, best law school I got in, it was the best law school I got into. <laughs> I was going to uh, say, you weren't allowed to go to IU? <laughs> no, I was, I'm very happy that I went to Michigan law school. Some of my closest friends to this day are my, uh, my, my classmates from uh, the Michigan law class of 1983. And it was a great place to go to school. It, Ann Arbor is a terrific town. And most importantly, most importantly, I met my wife in Ann Arbor. We were married there. And uh, we still, uh, she's a rabid Michigan football fan. So in spite of my Purdue leanings, I now own season tickets for the University of Michigan's uh, football team. And you go up there for every home game? Oh, no, not every one of them. But we probably make about half of them. We're, I'm going to date this podcast that's the uh, being recorded the Tuesday before the Notre Dame-Michigan game in October. Are you going to make that one? Yes. Not only am I going to make that one, <laughs> but, uh, but, but uh, we sold to, to benefit Crystal House. We sold um, a package of joining me for the Denver Broncos-Indianapolis Colts game the very next day which I thought would be no problem at all, given that the uh, Notre Dame-Michigan game would be on Saturday. I could sleep in in Ann Arbor, drive home, and make it to the 4.30 game. Then they changed the time of the game. <laughs> so I'm going to be getting out of bed about 5 o'clock in the morning on, uh, on, on Sunday and coming down for the Colts game. But yes, we will be at the Michigan-Notre uh, Dame game, and I'm not going to say anything negative about uh, our Irish, your Irish fans out there because I actually like the University of Notre Dame, and uh, I'll be rooting for Michigan, but I won't be, uh, I won't be as rabid as my wife will be. I won't tell them again, Lise. <laughs> at the Golden Ace, I promise. Thank you. Did you come right back to Indianapolis after graduating from law school? I did. I did. I came back and worked for the law firm of Ice Miller, Donatio, and Ryan, which is almost the same name today, Ice Miller. And I worked there for almost six years before I went into government. Did you enjoy it? We had our podcast with Governor Daniels, and he didn't, he said, as I recall, Spangle, he said he malpracticed law for a while. <laughs> I would not say I was uh, 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 the best lawyer at that law firm at all, nor was I perhaps uh, born to be a practicing lawyer. I love the law, and and I, to, to this day, you know, if I was... And I actually do this. 
occasionally, rarely, but occasionally, I'll read a law review article or something else if it's on a related article, related issue to something that I'm doing. And I really enjoy the law. Um, I was uh, I just for whatever reason, probably not the most adept practitioner, uh, but. Uh, but it was, I, I knew fairly early on, I probably was not going to be a career lawyer. Uh, I look at those folks uh, that I started with at the law firm who have stayed and have made a successful career. And I kind of envy them for the stability of their lives. <laughs> I have chosen to bounce around and do a million different things, uh, whereas they've had a lot more uh, uh, stability than I have. But uh, yeah, I, I I I realized within a few years that it was probably not the ideal profession for me. Coming back to Indianapolis as a Democrat in the mid-ish 80s, you look at the state and you look at city government and you wonder perhaps when's it going to be our time? And it came, fair to say, more quickly than perhaps expected in 1988, when Evan Bayh wins the governor's office. Were you involved in that campaign? Did you know then-Secretary of State Bayh? And what did you think about that turn of events? I did, and and I agree with you. I think it had not been for Evan Bayh, the status quo would have remained for a much longer time. So there had been no Democrat-elected governor of Indiana for the 20 years leading up to uh, Governor Bayh's election. And uh, I, I don't know of, I can't imagine anybody else who could have won. Because uh, he beat a damn good man. 1988, he absolutely did. Uh, somebody who had uh, not just paid his dues, but really served the state uh, incredibly well and honorably. And, and it was a tough, tough race. But I actually, uh, in 1985, January of 85, I remember I went to a luncheon and heard Evan Bayh speak for the first time. And I decided I was going to sign up for that program. I was uh, really impressed by him personally. And I did a little bit of work on his Secretary of State's campaign in 1986. And then about the middle of 87, when uh, I think it was pretty open secret that he was going to run for governor in 88, I asked if I could be the environmental advisor, environmental issues advisor for his campaign. Did you practice environmental law? I did practice environmental law. That I had uh, sort of about the middle of my three uh, six-year stint with the law firm, I became uh, the person who was responsible for the environmental for environmental issues in business transactions. So, became kind of a uh, a hot issue area at that time. Uh, environmental lawyers were were pretty in demand then, and actually did enjoy practicing environmental law and learned uh, all of the. All of the key statutes, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, the Superfund law, all of those laws. And I believe that the environment was likely to be a, a meaningful issue in the 88 campaign. And I told the governor's campaign manager, who at the time uh, was, uh, I mean, who today is the current mayor of Indianapolis and at the time was uh, was uh, 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 just a lawyer who was Evans' campaign manager. It was before he became secretary of state. And I thought there'd be a long line of people waiting to be the environmental advisor to the Evan Bayh for governor campaign. <laughs> but uh, Joe immediately said, you want it? You're it. Done. Uh, and I spent a, a fair amount of time working on that campaign. And then when he was elected, he asked me to join his staff as his environmental advisor. And so that's what I did initially 
for the first couple of years. Then I became the deputy chief of staff. Then I became the chief of staff. So, so I ended up being, I thought I'd do a two year stint with him after he was elected and I ended up staying six and a half years, uh, it, almost his entire time. I'm going to guess that you made more money at the law firm than you did working for state government. Well, that is an interesting, you're correct. Uh, although it was fairly close because I was a year away from when I would have been considered to be a partner in the law firm and was still making a, uh, uh, was still making a associate uh, associates salary. And so it didn't, uh, it, it, had I gone from a partner's salary to a state government <laughs> salary, it would have been a little more painful, but uh, it ended up being not too bad a transition. The difference is, it basically never went up the entire six and a half years. <laughs> entire six and a half years. I think when I left, I was making about a thousand dollars more than when I started. But, okay, so I uh, have to ask: who is more? Who is the most frugal? You, current mayor Joe Hogsett, former governor Evan. Oh, Bay. that's a really good question. I clearly finished third in that contest. Those two. <laughs> those two are crazy. They're. They're. <laughs> You finished they third are, in a good way, right? You finished. Well, third I in finished a good third way. in a profligate way. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> the two of them, the two of them are uh, extremists when it comes to being frugal with the public. Uh, so when you go to lunch money. or dinner with them, is and who has the? Yeah, I think it's personal. I think it's personal as well as professional with them. Yes. <laughs> so who has now, the best both, set of alligator both, arms? They're both wonderful people, uh, but they yes they they practice frugality in all aspects of their lives. But um, you know, and and I will tell you, uh, all kidding aside, it. I, 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 part of the reason why that's built into their uh, way of of governing, their way of being involved as as public figures, if you think back to that era, it was uh, it, Democrats were just beaten into the dust, beaten into dust as a result of you know uh, sort of being pro tax increase and tax every, everywhere you turn you know democrats wanted to raise your taxes that was sort of the stereotype that was effectively used against democrats in all campaigns and uh Evan Bayh was a brilliant politician and a and a and a great person you know he knew that and uh very if and it came naturally to him i'm dead serious it really did, did come naturally <laughs> to him and and again, I, I, I'm joking a little bit about the personal side, but but he really believed that uh, it was critical to prove that Democrats could govern in a fiscally responsible way. And of course, Joe was right there beside him, and uh, they have never wavered in the 30 plus years since that time uh, in their commitment to spending the public's money wisely, which I think is a big part of why they've been successful. But folks, a lot of people myself included, take significant uh, pay cuts to go work for government, city or state, and I'm assuming federal in some cases, because you want to be, there's some proximity to power and influence, of course, you can't ignore that. But you get a chance to do really amazing things. And this is obviously before you're mayor, but you're chief of staff and you're in the governor's office and you can really influence in a good way projects and things that are near and dear Hoosiers. And to me, as much as I missed the money, I enjoyed the experience more. So leaving Ice Miller and going to the state house, did you ever regret it? No, no, you're you're exactly right. I feel exactly the same way you did. And and the truth is you grow up so quickly because the responsibility is thrust on you. I was thirty years old. I had been practicing law for almost six years. 
Uh, but I was still, you know, I was still an associate. I was still a pretty junior person. The level of responsibility I got in state government was uh, dramatically different. All of a sudden, I was calling the shots in my little area there. I ended up being the chief of staff to the governor, and uh, which is sort of tantamount to being the chief operating officer of, of state government, which is a multi-billion dollar operation with uh, uh, many thousands of employees. And I could not have had that, um, doing anything else, I don't think I would have gotten that level of responsibility that quickly. So not only do you have the ability to have some impact on public affairs and, and, and events and public policy, which you know people like you and I who go into this love that kind of thing, but you also get a chance to become develop leadership uh, traits that I think, uh, certainly in my case, and I think in most people's cases, serve you well later on. So I look at the group that I started with in Evan Bayh's office. We were 30, 31, 29. The governor himself was only 32 when he was elected. <laughs> um, and, you know, we've we've all gone on to leadership, uh, different leadership roles. And it's the same thing with my administration as mayor. I'm we had a little reunion the other day. I'm so proud of the team that I had a chance to work with and not just what they did then, but what they've done since then. And I believe a, a big part of that is the fact that you have so much responsibility and typically frequently because of the pay and other reasons at a young age. And uh, it was the it was a great proving ground for me. I, I know when I became mayor, one of the advantages that I had, and I think this was quite a significant one, was that I had sat in an executive office for six and a half years, in this case, the governor's office, and I had seen crises come and go. And I had, a, I think, a certain calmness about uh, impending disasters or what looked like impending disasters, because I'd seen so many impending disasters and realized most of them don't actually turn into disasters. They really look like they're going to be disasters, but they turn out to uh, sort of fizzle out or go away. And uh, that that experience and and the and then the the true disasters that actually do happen, it, you learn how to deal with them, right? And so when I became mayor, I had a fair amount of experience with dealing with things that were really bad that had to be dealt with and also looking at a lot of things that looked like they might turn bad and not panicking about them because I knew most of them probably would resolve themselves and those that didn't, we'd figure out how to solve them because we'd done it before. And that, that really put me in a, in a good position when I became mayor. So being a staff person to an executive branch official, I'm sure the same thing is true for legislative uh, staffers as well. I just never served in that kind of a role, but in my case, it, 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 uh, it was a huge advantage. And I, I look at uh, our state and I, I know that in the governor's office, I, I don't know all very many of the staffers there, but I'm sure they're having the same experience that I did. And a lot of future leaders in our state are going to come out of that office. Uh, and just the same with Mayor Hogsett's office here in Indianapolis. So it's a great proving ground uh, for young people. Uh, the only thing it lacks is good pay. <laughs> and they're all underpaid. Everyone in state government is ever underpaid. All, everyone in city government's underpaid. I mean, the hours you put in are remarkable, and the scrutiny you're under can, is almost immeasurable. And but you do it because you love your city and you love your state. Very true. 
You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana. The Crown Plaza Hotel and Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Fast forward a few years. There's a mayoral election in 1999. It's going to be an open seat. Previous mayor Steve Goldsmith, who had lost the 96 gubernatorial election to Frank O'Bannon, decides not to run for a third term. Open seats don't happen very often. What made you think that Bart Peterson could break the 32-year stranglehold on the mayor's office by the Republican Party? Well, for one thing, I think it's worth pointing out, Robert, that uh, I didn't know it was going to be an open seat uh, when I started. I actually thought that it was going to be an open seat. I, I believed that Mayor Goldsmith would not run for a third term. Had I believed he was going to run for a third term, I don't. <laughs> I, 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 I think I probably would not have run. Uh, but I believed it would be an open seat. Nobody else believed it would be an open seat, I, at least on the Democratic side. I don't know what the scuttlebutt among Republicans was, but uh, on the Democratic side, everybody assumed I'd be running against uh, Steve Goldsmith, and uh, and and most of them weren't overly optimistic about my chances in that kind of a contest. But in '95. He did not do very well, even though he won against uh, sitting Judge Z. May Jemison. His numbers were down. And it might have been, we've recorded a podcast with Paul Okeson and, and Michael Connor, former chiefs of staff to respective mayors, uh, Ballard and Peterson. And I had heard before that, that the 95 race was the signal that maybe things are changing. Now, they may not change super quickly, but but the numbers are starting to finally turn. Is that something that you looked at, were aware of, factored in? You know, because because the 95 race was, uh, Judge Jemison didn't have a lot of money in that race. Um, I didn't think that was the most representative race, but I looked at a lot of other races. Uh, what I did is I started really studying how candidates did in Marion County, how Democrats did in Marion County in statewide races. So I looked at Evan Bayes races. I looked at uh, at Frank O'Bannon's, Jeff Modisette, who was elected uh, Marion County prosecutor, I believe in 1990, and, uh, and then was uh, narrowly defeated in 1994. I looked at uh, a lot of different races where a lot of money was spent. And my view was after all of this very much amateur analysis, that if a Democrat had enough money to get their message out, they could be competitive in Marion County. Uh, the common uh, wisdom at that time was that uh, a Democrat couldn't possibly win in Marion County, that, that the numbers just didn't add up. But I believed that in a fair contest, meaning a contest in which both sides had about the same amount of money, and it turned out that that's the way my race went, actually. We, I think we spent almost the same amount of money with myself and, and my opponent in 99. But I believe that if a Democrat could get their message out, uh, they could win. And as each year passed by, I believe the county was starting to move more and more uh, in, uh, you know, a few, a few Republicans were leaving, a few Democrats were moving in. It was each year the percentages were probably getting a little closer. I don't know what the percentage in 99 was. It, could have been anywhere from 
you know, 54, 55% Republican down to maybe 52% Republican. I don't know, but I believe that it, there was a still a Republican advantage at that point, but it was close enough that in a, in a, in a race where each side had enough money, uh, that, that it would be effectively a toss up. And that's the mentality that I had going into it. But again, remember, I didn't think Steve Goldsmith was going to run. Uh, and I don't know whether I'd been able to raise any money if Steve Goldsmith had run. But what happened is about three weeks before, two or three weeks before he made the decision not to run, all of a sudden I became convinced he was going to run. I finally was the last holdout and I finally gave up and said, you know what? He's going to run, and it's too late to get out. So let's. <laughs> let, I think we're in this for let, let, for better or worse. We're we're in this thing. But then after the uh, after the election, uh, it was announced that Indianapolis was not going to get the um, Republican National Convention. And within a couple of days after that announcement, he announced he was not going to run. I've never asked him this, and he and I have a great relationship. I, uh, but I've never asked uh, uh, Steve this if if. Uh, if if that affected his decision, That's I'm sure question. he would have wanted to be mayor when the Republican National Convention was here. And I think a lot of people thought we would get the convention that year. Uh, so that would have been 2000. For Mitch the Daniels 2000 was unhappy that it didn't come here that year. Yeah, I, I think everybody was actually. I mean, it it, uh, uh, it, it in retrospect, except me. But, it, <laughs> uh, you know, we all realized it would have been good for the city. But. Uh, but I, but I was I was had in mind that 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 influenced his decision that he probably wasn't going to run, but that he couldn't pass up that chance to be the host of mayor for the Republican. That's a reasonable convention. calculation. So, uh, but anyway, that. it was only a day or two after that announcement was made that he uh, that he announced that he was not going to run, uh, and then from then on, it was an open sea race, uh, which obviously changed the dynamic entirely. I was able to. Uh, that was uh, raised a lot of money for the campaign, but but the theory of the theory of running, of of crunching the numbers, and talking with your friends, and having conversations over lunch. There's that, and then there's signing your name to the candidate filing paperwork. How did you go from the former to the latter, like? The the you mentioned the open seat, but you didn't know at the time. And but in the Marion County was maybe trending a little bit, but clearly there must have been some tough conversations, some fun conversations with your friends and family to make you write your name and file that paperwork with the clerk. Well, I think anybody who has any success in politics is somehow driven internally. Uh, I've always said if you have to go talk somebody into being a candidate for something odds are they're going to lose unless it's unless it's such a lopsided race that they can't lose uh, because you you really have to be driven internally by it. you have to believe somehow that that um, uh, that you want to be there and you want to win more than anything in the world because it's extremely hard as you well know it's it's incredibly demanding in on every aspect of your life and you have to sacrifice a lot in order to do it but it doesn't feel like sacrifice and it doesn't feel like work if you if you are totally and completely committed to it. And pretty early on, I got totally and completely committed to it. And I believe that if I did everything I needed to do, that I would win and that nobody 
if I did lose, it wasn't going to be because I was outworked. I was going to work harder than anybody else uh, possibly could in that race. And part of that is motivated by the just what you said. When you sign those candidate papers, it's too late. Your name's going to be <laughs> on the ballot. Uh, do you want to be humiliated or do you want to uh, acquit yourself well, win or lose? And if you're going to quit yourself well, you better do everything that it takes. You better work every single minute. You better uh, raise all the money you can raise. You better go uh, speak everywhere you can speak. You better uh, use whatever uh, ingenuity you have to figure out the right strategy. You better believe that there's something worth running for. And, you know, I love this city. I lived my whole life in this city. And I just believed, uh, not that we needed to turn it around. Heck, we were on a good upward trajectory. I wanted to keep it going and and add you know some of my own ideas to it and uh, so I was kind of a true believer in my own candidacy and I also uh, was like I think anybody else with any sense who gets involved in politics um, I didn't want to lose and I was <laughs> I was going to spend every spare moment I could every opportunity I had to try to convince one more voter I was going to take because I didn't want to lose. As much as I wanted to win, I also didn't want to lose. And I think, you know, back to your point about once you, you know, you can talk about it, but then you got to sign those papers. When you sign those papers, you better be all in. When you decided to run, did then Senator Evan Bayh say, run, Bart, run? Well, nobody really said run, Bart, run. I have to tell you, I uh, I think I only had one person ever before I decided to run tell me, Bart, you ought to get involved in politics. You ought to run for mayor. Uh, Do we know this person? Uh, yeah, I'm not going to say his name. He knows <laughs> he knows who he is. Uh, I, I I often mention him. I, I I often when I see him, I mention that uh, point that he was the only person that ever said that to me. But. Um, no, I, I think I think everybody thought it was, like I said, the conventional wisdom was it wasn't time, you know, maybe someday, but not today. And again, people thought Steve Goldsmith would run and that he would add unlimited uh, money and be very, very hard to raise money in a campaign like that. And uh, all of those things were true with the exception of the fact that I, I did believe that the county was trending uh, toward being closer uh, to 50-50. And uh, I also just, like I said, I had this uh, belief in my own campaign. And uh, I figured if we could put a good team together, which we did, we had a great team. Uh, if we could stay disciplined, uh, have a clear message and uh, work hard, uh, that we had a 50-50 chance. Now, I thought it was 99 to 1 chance uh, sure. in favor of winning, but I couldn't say that to people. That would come across as crazy. Uh, but, you know, it, I, I think eventually we got to a point where people thought there was a 50-50 chance we could win. And when you have that, then you can start raising money. People will start working for you, uh, volunteering for you, those kinds of things that help make a campaign really work. When the Republicans nominated Sue Ann Gilroy, part of the Luger family, it was the sitting Secretary of State, did that change the dynamic for you at all, running against the first female Republican nominee for the mayor of Indianapolis? Was that a different challenge than perhaps you were anticipating? No, I never thought about it as a challenge because uh, Sue Ann was uh, a woman. I thought it was a challenge because she had name identification. 
and she certainly had the the she she was a Republican establishment figure. She wasn't a fringe character or something like that. She was a, a Republican establishment figure, which meant that you know there probably wasn't going to be anybody against her within the party, uh, and she had some level of name identification. Uh, from her years as Secretary of State, so uh, I thought uh, she would be a, a you know a very effective candidate for Republicans. I thought the only disadvantage that she had, uh, and correspondingly advantage I had, uh, was that she was kind of anointed, and I think that that when you're anointed, sometimes that just automatically makes people a little bit. Uh, you know, some people a little bit irritated. People who have a tendency to be anti-establishment, you know, if the establishment anoints somebody, they just want to be against them just for that reason. We've seen that many times recently. Yeah, yeah it, it's a it's a phenomenon in politics, and and I thought that might be a little bit of a disadvantage for her that that um, uh, and there's no, that wasn't her fault. I mean, there was nothing she could do about that because. It was only less than a year, slightly less than a year before the election, uh, when when uh, Mayor Goldsmith announced that he was not going to run. So somebody most likely was going to be anointed, uh, although it could have been left wide open, and you know, see who earned it. And refresh but, my memory: Did you have a primary opponent in '99? Uh, I I did. I had one or two primary opponents, but they were sort of a you know perennial candidates. Sure. The decision to formulate and print, release, promote the Peterson plan. Please talk about that decision. And that's A. And B, when was the last time you read it? <laughs> the last time I read it. I actually did read it uh, many, many times. <laughs> uh, but no, I haven't read it for a very long time. It's hard for me to believe it's been 20 years since we, uh, more, a little few months more than 20 years since we published that. I'll tell you where it came from. It it partially from me and and partially from uh, from Mike O'Connor, who was my campaign manager then. I never intended it to be published. It was my experience in working as a staffer for Evan Bayes' first gubernatorial campaign was that if you plan things out and you put a plan together, a written plan then you actually have something to follow once you get into office. So the way that experience worked is I brought a bunch of people together who were supporters of Evans, who were interested in environmental issues, and we put a plan together. It was a probably a 30-page plan. He did a press conference and announced it a couple months before the election. Nobody paid any attention to it. But once we, <laughs> once we got into office, once he got into office, we started following that plan. And with its five, six, seven different legislative proposals and uh, all kinds of you know administrative proposals, all this stuff we said we were going to do, he said we were going to do, nobody paid any attention to, we started doing them. And and then, that was 88, uh, he was took office in 89. Then in 1990, the environment all of a sudden became this huge issue in America for a number of reasons. And all of a sudden, I'm doing TV interviews and and legislative uh, environmental issues at the legislature are the most followed issues it was amazing um but we had a plan and so we actually had something to say and something to do when the environment when circumstances made the environment a big issue what i told my team my campaign team in 1999 uh, was that 
when you get into office, all hell breaks loose. Uh, no matter what you think, you have all this time to plan. You may think you're busy in a campaign, but you're not busy in a campaign compared to how busy you are when you're in office. And all of a sudden, everybody's priority is is being jammed down your throat. Everybody wants you to do what they want you to do. <laughs> That's right. And and then things start to happen, right? Stuff happens in the environment, uh, the 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 uh, environment in the broadest sense. Sure. Things just start happening in the world that you have to deal with. I never had any plan to deal with the Indianapolis Colts. It ended up being a dominant thing in, during my administration was to negotiate a deal with the Colts and ultimately build the stadium. But I never even thought about that before I was elected. So stuff happens when you get into office. If you don't walk into office with a blueprint, with a plan about what you're going to do, you're just going to – it's like be like somebody who's on a raft out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean with no navigation equipment. I mean, you you, you can start to – you know paddle your little raft in one direction, but you have no idea what direction you're going. Well, as tr- press secretary for the Ballard transition team, you are exactly correct, Mayor Peterson. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's so when you exactly. when you win in a surprise win, you you you, you tend not to have all those oh, things planned out. Exactly right. But I had that experience from the Biden administration, so I, I I wanted to have a plan and we had a lot can we had something like fifty people uh did research and helped help put that plan together. We talked to David Harris a little bit about it. Yeah, yeah he was exactly. very involved in it. Uh, Jane Henniger, who became my deputy mayor, was, was oversaw the production of it. And we had a lot of people working for a long time on it. Um, I, I, For me, it was just a blueprint for what we were going to do when we got there. I might talk about elements of it because it was it related to the three main pillars of my campaign. But... Uh, three main pillars of my campaign were the three main sections of the Peterson plan, but I never thought we would publish it and and put it in campaign ads. That was Mike's idea, and in fact, I tried to talk him out of it. Show you what an astute politician I was. <laughs> I tried to talk him out of it, but uh, he convinced me, and of course, it ended up being uh, probably the most important thing that we did. When this podcast airs, it will be two days after the twentieth anniversary of your win in 99. How much of election night do you remember? And to the extent that you remember it, and I'm sure you do, what was that feeling like? Well, it's a very nice feeling. Obviously, you've been working. I, 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 I guess I would, I've never been uh, an athlete, although I love sports. I can imagine what somebody feels like at the end of a long a college or professional season in football or basketball when they win the championship, you just think back on all the hard work and, and the team and the camaraderie that you developed with your teammates and all that kind of thing. That, that really was probably, that's what felt the best was just that we all did it together and we were a team and it felt good to celebrate with your teammates. Uh, it is not in this business the business of politics, it's not something that lasts um, terribly long because you really you realize you wake up the next morning and that period of time between the election and the inauguration, uh, which looked really like a long period of time, and you don't want to do too much planning ahead of time, you know, because you don't want to take your eye off the ball, you got to win the election first. Uh, we had a lot of work to do, so it, you know, reality hit pretty quickly uh, thereafter. But it, it's it's pretty exhilarating. I'll t- I'll tell you the uh, uh, 
for me at least, the most interesting story from that night. Remember, this is 1999. There are no other major elections going on. There are, you know, a dozen, probably a dozen big city elections going on around the country. You know, that's about it. It's an it's an odd numbered year. There are no Senate races, no congressional races, no presidential race. So the mayor's races got a fair amount of attention. And Bill Clinton was president of the United States. Al Gore was vice president. I got a call from both of them that night, a call from the president and the vice president that night. Um, now, I don't know if every if everybody uh, who won those big city races got those calls, but uh, certainly because we had flipped a city that had been uh, in Republican control for 32 years, uh, it was a little more closely watched. Uh, same thing happened in Columbus, Ohio that night, I believe. And uh, Manchester, New Hampshire. I remember President Clinton talking about how amazing it was that we won it. <laughs> Manchester, New Hampshire. Related to the New Hampshire primary. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> uh, that's, that's, that's why people. So the day before the election, you're talking to Scott Chin. And yeah. the, next, and the <laughs> night of the election, you're talking to. And I admire, I, I admire them both equally. <laughs> um, but the, fi- the reason I bring that up is uh, it, 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 there are everybody sort of knows the personality of those two men. And they were on full display that night. Bill Clinton kept talking. President Clinton kept talking so long. I, 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 I almost told him I had to leave to go, you know, <laughs> give my speech. I almost had to hang up on the president because he was just sort of going you know, like he had nothing else to do. Um, and that's, he was sort of famous for that. You know, uh, he was always late to everything because he just kept talking and listening and, and, and he loved conversation. Uh, Al Gore just, uh, uh It was like he was reading from a script, you know, (laughs) congratulations, Bart, you know, we are very proud of you, you know, say with feeling. (laughs) So, you know, uh, I I admired Al Gore, but, but he he sort of didn't have the same sort of uh, smoothness, uh, let's say that Bill Clinton had, uh, which I got to see on full display. One thing uh, I want to make sure that we're, we're clear on as we, as we talk about your years as mayor. And I would say, I would imagine that Richard Luger would definitely say the same, say the same considering uh, who worked for him and certainly uh, now deceased Mayor uh, Bill Hudnut. And we're putting together a retrospective podcast on the Hudnut years as mayor with Joe Slash and Lisa Dietrich and Dave Arlen. And Goldsmith would say the same, the immense talent in the mayor's office. But when I have people who are meeting Mayor Ballard for the first time and they go, what's it like? You know, what should I tell him? I go, compliment his staff as mayor. If you compliment his staff as mayor, he's putty in your hands. And looking back at the people who worked for you, it's a terrific collection of talent. Whether it's Michael Connor, Melina Kennedy, Kobe Wright, Scott Chin, uh, Steve Campbell, Justin Olmiller, Terry Morris Downs, my personal favorite because she's an East Sider. Mm. The list goes on and on and on and on. You mentioned a little bit earlier about your reunion. Just quickly, how proud are you of these then young men and women who worked for you? Oh, I can't tell you how proud I am. I'm, I, I'm, I, I loved working with them. I loved them as people. I've, you know, taken great joy in watching their careers. I take no credit for it. They're enormously talented people. I'm glad that I had the office that I had, which created opportunities for them or had positions that they could fill where they could 
use their creativity, their intelligence, their drive, their discipline, all those things that make people successful. They had a chance to put those on full display, uh, just the way I did when I was a staff person for Governor Bai. And, you know, they made a difference in this city. They really helped change this city uh, for the better, uh, just as just as uh, other mayor's staffs uh, have had the opportunity to do in the, in the past and, and will in the future. So I, I just couldn't be more proud. And uh, it's interesting you would say that about Mayor Ballard. Uh, I'm the sort of the same way. I when people compliment me, it doesn't. I, I appreciate it, but it doesn't really mean that much to me because I know that I was just one of many uh, who worked hard, and I know that, that where the best ideas came from, and I know where the hardest work came from, and I know where the breakthroughs came from. They came from my team, and it was just a great group of people who made a, a huge difference for this city, and I'm really, really proud of them. And and they've, like I said earlier, they've done so many great things since then. And uh, we, uh, well, I'm not going to start naming names because that's a dangerous uh, path to go down. But Jennifer Smith Simmons, <laughs> Barbara Lawrence, the list goes on and on. David Harris, it is was a incredible collection of talent. Yes, it was. Let's talk about your eight years as mayor, I'm going to throw just two or three issues out or things that happen and let you take it from there. Human rights ordinance. Yeah. You know, I, uh, when, when RIFRA came up in 2015 here in the state, I, I had a a faulty memory of the human rights ordinance in Indianapolis. I had thought that it passed a lot easier than it did. Uh, In (laughs) fact, it was, it was a kind of a catastrophe almost. Um, We actually, I think we actually lost the vote the first time and uh, had to go back for a, I can't, can't remember exactly what the, what we did, but we had to go, win some votes after either we lost a vote or it appeared we were going to lose a vote on that. And it ended up passing, I think, just by one vote So in the city council. So that ended up being a really big fight. And I remember it being a great success for the city. I just forgot how tough it was to get that done. And as any politician who's been in office in the last uh, uh, 20 years uh, or starting about when I did in 2000 up till today – will tell you, everybody will tell you this, there is no single issue that has moved as quickly Mm. as uh, rights for the LGBT community, uh, LGBTQ community in in this country, in this state, and in this city. Nothing has moved as far and as fast. You know, we all know very famously that uh, President Obama was uh, against same-sex marriage uh, as a candidate in 2008. And... Um, yeah, I was already out of office by then. Uh, so uh, it it really from from about the mid you know decade of the two thousands, uh, from about the middle of that decade to the time when the Supreme Court ruled, which was about a ten year period, uh, that issue uh, just completely flipped. And and today there's even more support for same sex marriage and LGBTQ rights uh, than than there was four years ago. The mayor's office of charter schools. Yeah, one of well, the single uh, greatest accomplishments of any executive 
state or local in the history of Indiana. <laughs> Absolutely 100%. Let's just leave it at that. <laughs> why, why should I speak and ruin it? <laughs> you know, um, I, I will tell you, uh, I, uh, all credit for that goes to David Harris. Uh, David is a, a remarkable leader, as you know, and uh, one of the unsung heroes nationally I shouldn't say unsung. I mean, he's he's actually sung these days uh, among education reformers, um, but uh, you know, but 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 he doesn't have a famous name nationally, except in that group of people who understand uh, what it takes to make a difference in public education. Among that group of a few million people, he is a is a well known person, and he he really led the way. Uh, we set a standard for quality that I think carries on today. And I'm very, very proud that Mayor Ballard, uh, when he took office, uh, you know, believed in what we had done, uh, carried it on, took it to new heights, uh, and Mayor Hogsett even beyond that. So it is, uh, uh, most people, if they ask me what I'm uh, most proud of or what I remember most fondly from my days as Mayor they always think about the visible things like the football stadium or the airport. But to me, it was uh, our work in education reform and specifically the uh, uh, chartering of, of schools through the mayor's charter school office. The Indianapolis Colts win the Super Bowl. Yeah, that was really nice. Um, <laughs> first, I'm first and foremost a fan. And uh, you grew up I a football never, fan of which team? Uh, the Green Bay Packers, because they had a quarterback named Bart. And uh, at that time, <laughs> at that time, he was the only other human being in the world I knew of named Bart. This was before Bart Simpson ruined the name. Now, nobody, <laughs> no parents will ever name their kid Bart anymore because of Bart Simpson. But back then, Bart Starr was my hero. And my parents were from Wisconsin. And oh, yeah. so I was a huge Green Bay Packers fan. But uh, when the Colts came here, you know, I became like everybody else here just about. I became a huge, huge Colts fan. So it was just so much fun. Uh, as a fan and as a citizen of Indianapolis, it was really, as I think back, uh, going to Purdue, we won the, uh, Purdue won the uh, women's NCAA, uh, basketball championship in 99. And other than that, I don't think I've ever known a championship in my entire life, except for the Colts winning. So that, that meant a lot to me personally, but it was, such, you know, obviously it was huge for the city. And a val, a, a really, when we were doing the Colts deal, to get the stadium built and to sign the agreement to keep them here for 30 years. When we were doing that, that started off very unpopular. In fact, we had no allies at all um, well, the in Colts that effort. history has an exact, I mean, you had the Manning right. years and you had some other kind of sporadic, including this year, success, but for years and years. No, we had, it had been bad. Uh, I once uh, sold popcorn and, and Coke and the uh, Cokes in the, in the stands in order to try to generate publicity to get the, uh, to get a sellout so that we so that the blackout would be lifted for a game this was like in 2002 or something but in truth the uh the fact that the colts were such good guys we had a great exemplar in uh in in, in coach dungy you know who was just a you know wonderful human being peyton manning the face of the franchise a wonderful human being uh guys that everybody liked uh, there was just something about all that, and they were winning, and that made it possible sure. 
they weren't winning when we first started working on the deal. But by the time the deal had to be voted on and 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 get done, I mean the Colts were right on the cusp of of winning a Super Bowl. Finally, they did. You know, as we think back on that time, it was that was uh, later in. Uh, they had had a run of, of three or four good years before that. When it comes to difficulty, please rate, if you would, the decision and the execution of the merging of the police department and the sheriff's department and how that fit your overall uh, philosophy, which you were committed to both as mayor and after mayor of government consolidation. Well, I, I believe uh, in my bones that government consolidation is essential um, it, it, to, to save the taxpayers money, uh, to make government more efficient and more effective. And it just irks me to this day to see how much inefficiency there is in government and how much waste with a bunch of offices that don't need to exist. It turned out, uh, in retrospect, that merging the police and the sheriff's department was easier than uh, merging the fire departments, of which we had 11 in Marion County right. at that time. And we've now merged probably a slight majority, maybe six or seven of those 11 are part of uh, the Indianapolis Fire Department today. When I left office, maybe three or four were. Um, uh, Mayor Ballard got a, a few more done. That's right. Um, I hope I live to see the day when there's only one fire department in Marion County. Um, but that ended up being the politically difficult one. And the reason is, well, actually, they were both politically difficult, but that one was more difficult because it involved the townships. And the townships exactly. had their own fire departments. They had their own trustees. Their whole reason to exist really was the fire department that they ran. And so if you took their fire department away from them, they didn't really have much reason to exist. And so they fought it tooth and nail, most of them. Uh, two, two or three in my time, I can think of two, which I think were the two biggest, Washington Township and Warren Township, uh, did agree. Their trustees agreed to uh, merge their fire departments into IFD. The merger of the sheriff's and police department was fought tooth and nail by the police union, but the uh, ultimately, I think, they didn't have uh, support in the General Assembly. The firefighters, the township trustees, I should say, had support in the General Assembly to stop exactly. that. Exactly. Uh, so they did not give us an easy pathway forward from the, from the state legislature. They made it very difficult. There had to be, basically, the trustee had to sign off on it. That's why the only ones we got done were the ones where the trustees agreed. With police and fire, uh, they allowed us to do it in the state legislature, and so we were able to get it done. Ultimately, much easier uh, than with the uh, than with the fire merger. Uh, now, the one big difference was, in order to get it done politically within Marion County, I had to give up control of the uh, patrol operations to the sheriff, and then Mayor Ballard reversed that. The following year, tough decision is, for you. Uh, well, that was yes, it was a tough decision. I preferred it the way Mayor Ballard did, and he was able to get it done. Um, sort of one of those Nixon goes to China things. He was a he was a <laughs> he could get it done as a Republican. I couldn't get it done as a Democrat because we had a Democratic sheriff, and uh, so the result of that was we we end up getting to the right place. It was just a year later when you decided to run for a third term. Was it a tough decision, or was it more of I just have more work to do and I enjoy this so much. You know, I, I think it was, uh, well, I think it was a stupid decision for one thing. 
in retrospect. Well, I don't. But, uh, I, I want to let, let me let me defend that decision. Your eight years as mayor were terrific years. Greg Ballard said that on the good. podcast. There's a lot of people who've said that on this Leaders and Legends podcast. Uh, I was comms director at the Indiana Republican Party at the time. We all thought you were going to run for governor. It was just a matter of when. Daniels wasn't exactly riding high in the polls in 2007, if people remember correctly. And so that's the race that we thought was coming. But yet you decided to run for a third term. What went into that? And I know you what you said just a few seconds ago, but clearly no one anticipated what happened. And that's just candor. Yeah. You know, and, and I, 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 when I say it was a stupid decision, uh, that's obviously with uh, the benefit of, of, of hindsight at the time, it seemed like kind of a no brainer decision. Um, but I, but, but I actually had in my own mind decided I wasn't going to run. And then I changed my mind. And the reason I changed my mind is that you know, ironically, it was because I feared that we had not as firmly established the charter school work as we needed to. Hmm. And I say ironically because that's the thing. I, you know, we've had a great tradition of, of continuity in Indianapolis, so this isn't the only example. But that Mayor Ballard ended up picking up that uh, torch and and carrying it to even greater heights. He praised you for uh, it in was, the debate. I remember watching it. Yeah, yeah. So that that ended up being uh, the thing I was most concerned about. It ended up being the thing I should have been least concerned about. But mm. that w- I thought that that would get undone. My my big fear was that that was so hard fought. It was so uh, fraught with uh, danger and 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 rear guard actions. We had to fight for the success of that to keep that just to keep that law in place. We had to fight year after year after year. I thought if I stepped down and somebody else became mayor, that um, they wouldn't care about it as much as I did, and it, and all that work would get undone. Now, that's not the only reason I decided to do it, uh, but uh, that was sort of my policy reason uh, for deciding to run for a third term. Um, but uh, in in uh, in retrospect, in all truth, I think running and losing. I, I remember uh, I was in I was in the. Kennedy Presidential Library a few months afterwards, and I heard a some a speech from recorded speech from President Kennedy saying something I'd never heard before, but it really rang true with me, particularly at that time. He said, "You don't learn anything from winning an election." Or I, I think his exact words were, "They say you don't really understand politics until you've lost an election," and. I think that's really true, and I think that's true about in life in general. Uh, failure is a much better educator than success is. Success just tells you keep on doing the same thing over and over again. Failure causes you to really look and say, well, what what went wrong and what do I do differently next time? And so uh, for me, it's been a great 12 years since that election. I won't deny how painful it was, but I will say it's been uh, – if I, if I hadn't run, if I had just stepped down as mayor – I'm not sure what I'd be doing now. Um, and I'm very, very happy with everything that's happened in the last 12 years. So I, I have nothing to complain about. Did you think about running for governor in 2000? No, I never. No, not at all. Never, never did? Thought. No, no. No, I don't think Mitch Daniels could have been beaten. It turned out that way for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. We no, I really never did. 
I know there was some talk about that, but I never thought about it myself. Oh, I, I was writing the quotes <laughs> up in my little office. Since you became a private citizen again, you've had a remarkable career. Eli Lilly, uh, chairman of the board at the Mind Trust, uh, which was created by uh, David Harris after he left the mayor's office. Talk a little bit about your career after the mayor's office. You just mentioned that you've enjoyed it. You've been able to stay involved in Indianapolis, in education. Could there have been a better second act for you than this? Well, I don't know. You know, life is life is interesting, and I sometimes envy those people who can do one career their entire lives, and, and they get really good at it. For me, I'm always on a learning curve. <laughs> like I'm, I feel like I'm always on a lear- I'm always trying to trying to figure out a new field that I've engaged in. Uh, I'm very, very, very fortunate. I can't uh, express how fortunate I am to be the CEO of Crystal House International and to have the chance to work with Crystal DeHaan and the great team that we have here at Crystal House. And, uh, you know, our motto is transforming lives. And that's really true. This organization's even better on the inside than it looked like to me from the mm-hmm. outside. Uh, so I'm I'm blessed to have this opportunity. And I think everything I've done has helped me get to the point where I can do this job. Uh, the years at Lilly taught me so much about management, about leadership, about business. And I'd been in business before. I grew up in an entrepreneurial family. But uh, a big corporation like Lilly is just a different animal. And I learned so much there, uh, made many good friends, and and enjoyed it, and also had a chance to see the world. And all that really helped me to help prepare me for for this job. So uh, I've been very, very fortunate. I have. uh, And and my father used to say he came here uh, at the age of 19 from Wisconsin uh, on a motorcycle and to, to he came to visit his aunt and uncle in Indianapolis. And through a series of circumstances that we don't have time to talk about, he never left. And he ended up going, he's a true rags to riches story, uh, had nothing but the motorcycle and maybe 20 <laughs> bucks in his pocket uh, to his name. Those were his sum total of his assets. And uh, a woman back in Wisconsin who would become his wife and my mother. That's all he really had. And he became very, very successful. And he, he said to the day he died, uh, he could not have done it anywhere else. And he loved Indianapolis, and he transmitted that to all of his kids, and that's in my DNA. So everything I've ever accomplished uh, and every joy I've had in my life, I, I really attribute to the good fortune of having grown up in this city. And those eight years of having, having a chance to lead it uh, were, were, uh, will always be the most memorable of my life. So I'm very grateful. Does the collaborative nature of the city and its people and its leaders and its volunteers and its organization stay with you? That's been a recurring theme of the podcast. People lay aside whatever differences they have and come together to knock it out of the park or to move the ball forward. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, look at the two of us sitting here talking uh, uh, about this and having been on the other side of each other politically. That you see that over and over and over again, that we all put the city above everything else. And people have asked me, what's the secret of Indianapolis? How can we, other mayors would 
ask that. You know, we had a good re- even when I was mayor, we had a great reputation uh, nationally uh, from the work that my predecessors had done, and that secret sauce is something that I I don't know how to tell somebody else about. I don't know how to tell them to have people be um, self-sacrificing, to have people be willing to put the city above their own business or political interests because if we can raise the tide, it'll raise all the boats and, and we'll all win. We'll all be better off if we work together than if we fight each other. It's so obvious. I mean, the examples are there everywhere, but nobody else does it. Uh, almost nobody else does it. And so I don't really know how to tell somebody how to do it. It's just, I used to say when I was mayor, and I didn't, Mayor Ballard may have felt the same way, there are certain constraints you have on you, and I say this in a positive way, that if you get too far out of line, if you're not looking out for the city well enough, <laughs> the forces will come, you know, knock you back into line because we have a way of doing things here, and it's about collaboration and putting partisanship aside and putting the interests of the city above all else that uh, we just won't let a politician mess that up. And uh, and I'm very proud to live in a city where I can say that. And I give you two examples of this before we go on to the final five questions. When Indianapolis did not receive uh, the winning nod for the Super Bowl in 2007, went after the city went after the Super Bowl and didn't get it. Uh, as comms director for the Indiana Republican Party, I went to Murray Clark, who was the chairman, and said, what do you want to do? And Murray goes, we need to put out a statement thanking the city for the effort, even though we came up second. This is in the heart of a heated mayoral campaign. And and so maybe as Republicans, it wasn't the best thing we should have done. But for the city to play in that league after all this growth, it was the right thing to do. And I can also say, and I believe it was the summer of 2008, Former Mayor Bart Peterson and current Mayor Greg Ballard did a joint um, news conference talking about the need for government consolidation. Yes. Mm -hmm. We sure did. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, the Crown Plaza Hotel and Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. We end all podcasts with the same five questions. Mayor, are you ready? Is this a lightning round? (laughs) Yeah, probably a little bit. Some of the answers are longer than others as people try to remember. Question number one, what was your first job? Bagging groceries at Amalia at 106th in college. What was your first concert? Neil Young. Live Rust? Yes. That's pretty damn good. <laughs> if you could rend, recommend, excuse me, if you could recommend any book for someone to read, which book would you recommend? Oh, gosh. I have a, a million books that I recommend to people. Um, but I recommend one to only a very select group of people. And there are people who are willing to read a 1,200-page book about a person that most people have never heard of, uh, but it's widely regarded as uh, uh, among the greatest biographies ever written. It's um, written, the, the book is Robert Moses and the Fall of New York by Robert Caro, 
who's more famous for writing a multi-volume history, uh, biography of Lyndon Johnson. But uh, before that, he won the Pulitzer Prize for uh, his book on Robert Moses. It's called The Power Broker. I'm sorry, that's the name of the book. The Power Broker, Robert Moses and the Fall of New York. Uh, one of the most amazing uh, uh, characters in the history of our country who basically built the modern New York and uh, lost his soul in the process. Uh, so, but you got to be a little bit intense <laughs> to want to read that book, The Power Broker by Robert Caro. If you could witness any event in history, be there as it happens, which event would you choose? Lincoln's second inaugural address. My favorite words uh, written and spoken by an American statesman. That's positively brilliant. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, last question. Two hours off the record. Whom would you choose? Oh my gosh. That's a tough one. Anyone living today. All right. Um, Pete Buttigieg. Mayor of South I actually, Bend. I might actually be able to pull that off. If, How's Grace say? Haven't like you a, not already? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not two hours. <laughs> In 1999, Bart Peterson and his team ended 32 years of Republican mayorals, mayorality in this city. And it's safe to say that perhaps the voters of Indianapolis took a flyer on some folks that may or may not have heard of. We are very fortunate that they did so. The eight years of the Peterson administration were terrific years for the city and we cannot thank him enough for his time today, and we must acknowledge again the amazing quality of his staff and all the work they continue to do in this city and beyond. Thank you, Mayor. Thank you, Robert. I appreciate your kind words. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Mm-hmm.